0: You have to stay on top of trends. Today's leaders always need to be learning. In this environment of limited resources, the only way to remain competitive is your ability to leverage your most important resource. Welcome to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. In this program, we'll dive into leadership fundamentals that are essential to your success. Now, here's your host, Tom Crea.
1: Good Monday morning, everyone. It's good to be back. If you're a regular listener, you may have noticed that I haven't done a live show in a few weeks. And, uh, you know, there's been so much going on in the world today. So hopefully you and your loved ones are all safe and doing well and everyone around you. Um, In case you're wondering, I had an operation a couple weeks ago. I'm still recovering and we don't shy away from faith on this particular show. So if anyone wants to say a prayer for me, I welcome that. And help me get through the recovery, which probably take a couple more weeks. But without further ado, you know, we've been talking about on this show in every episode. um, I've invited guests who can help you on your leadership journey. And um, today's show is about telling stories. And we have Paul Andrew Smith as our guest today. And I'm going to give you a little bit about what we're going to talk about and then we're going to get into talking and meeting Paul. So in the description we said every great leader is a great storyteller and the most first and most important part of being a great storyteller is knowing what stories to tell. After conducting over 300 one-on-one interviews with CEOs and executives in 25 countries around the world, author Paul Smith compiled a list of the most important 10 stories any leader needs to be able to tell at a moment's notice. The 10 great stories Leaders tell explorers these ten stories and provides t- tips for you to craft to find and craft on your own. Now, a little bit about Paul. He is one of the world's leading experts in business storytelling. He's one of Inc. Magazine's top 100 leadership speakers of 2018. A storytelling coach, a best-selling author of the books. The 10 Stories Great Leaders Tell, Sell with a Story, Lead with a Story, and I've highlighted this one, Parenting with a Story, because like if you're like me, many of you are home with your children right now, and you might want to pick up a copy of that book just to get you through these trying times for the next two weeks, two months, who knows, Anyway, he holds a master's, an MBA from Wharton Business School and is a former consultant at Accenture and former executive and 20-year veteran of the Procter & Gamble Company. And his website is leadwithastory.com. So if you picked up on the theme there, you know, great stories leaders tell, sell with a story, lead with a story, parent. This is all about influence and leadership is about influence. So with that said, let me welcome Paul and then we'll get into some questions. Paul, thank you for being with us this morning.
2: Yeah, Tom, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be
1: here. Oh, great. I, I, I'm excited too. And uh, you may or may not know, but part of what I do is I'm a speaker as well. And, and I had a a speaking coach, and uh, you're going to hear some of the questions um, that I'm going to ask you. Are going to essentially come from some of the things that she taught with me. So, um, can you tell us anything unique about you that goes beyond what I read in the bio that perhaps would be of interest to the listeners?
2: Well, just a uh, I mean, just to connect the dots there. I mean, I spent most of my career in typical corporate jobs right? So a couple of years as a consultant at Accenture, 20 years at Procter & Gamble before I decided to start writing books and, and speaking and training. So um, I, I guess I spent most of my time and careers much like the people I would imagine would be listening to this show right now, um, as opposed to being a lifelong author and trainer or something. And uh, So I, I, I know from where my clients come, I guess is, is my point. I I've spent plenty of time in the trenches trying to communicate better. And, and this is my attempt to, to give back what I've learned a little.
1: Well, great. That sounds fantastic. And, uh, and I, uh, I've i already asked Paul this question. I'm going to ask him to share with us one of his stories. And and it's his first chapter in his book, and is a founding story. And when we get to that chapter, I'll ask him. But essentially, you know, how does somebody make a shift after 20 years in the business world with a, a great company like the Procter & Campbell? Procter & Gamble company. Um, So, we're going to get to that here soon. So, let's just kind of set this up for just why stories are so important. And you say, you know, it's knowing what stories to tell. It's more important than how you tell them. Do you want to comment any further on that?
2: Yeah. So, I, and this may just sound ironic. I mean, I, I spend most of my professional time and earn most of my living teaching leaders how to craft better stories. But the whole point of this book is, is that that's actually not the most important part of storytelling. The most important part is knowing what stories to tell. Uh, and and that's, that's and we'll get into what the 10 stories are. But uh, m- my point here is it would be far better to tell the right story, but tell it in a mediocre fashion and, you know, stutter and stammer along the way and butcher the surprise ending and not make good eye contact with your audience and, you know, futz with your hands or whatever – It'd be far better to do that than to tell the wrong story, but deliver it in a way that would make a Shakespearean actor proud, you mm-hmm. know, because in that first scenario, you know, your audience, unless you're a, prof- a real professional speaker, your audience isn't expecting perfection. They're expecting you to be a leader, to provide them guidance, to make sense, Right. Um, but in the second scenario where you've delivered it fabulously, but it was just the wrong story to tell, your audience will never forgive you for wasting their time, right? So, the story, the story really is more important than the delivery.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Um... And because it's one of the things that kind of caught me by surprise, and I'm, I'm still processing it, to be honest with mm-hmm. you, but I, 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 I don't disagree with your point. You know, one of the things I was taught, and you talk about it in your book, whether directly or indirectly, is, you know, the components of a story. And, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, but I'd like you to talk about the importance of having a hero, a villain, an obstacle. What's the hero's journey, if you will? Can you explain that to the listeners?
2: Yeah. So first of all, I uh, so a structure for a story is definitely Im- important. And I spend a lot of my time in the training classes I teach and in all of my other books talking about the structure of a well-told story. Um, but I don't refer to it as the hero's journey, which, which you did, which most people do, by the way, because that's a very popular and well-known storytelling structure. It was uh, popularized by Joseph Campbell in his book uh, Hero uh, or uh, Hero with a thousand faces, you know, which came out 30 years ago or something, um, but it's a 17-step, complicated, complicated plot structure. Um, and if you analyze the plot of a lot of, uh, you know, Hollywood movies, you'll definitely see that plot structure play out. Um, but the kind of storytelling that I'm talking about is the kind of stories that happen in two or three minutes in the office, right over the water cooler, uh, on on stage, and you know, in, in a meeting room. Uh, you don't have time for a 17-step hero's journey storytelling structure. You need something much, much simpler than that. So yes, you need it. You need a hero, <laughs> you need a villain, uh, and you need some kind of a struggle that's going on. So uh, the, the the structure that we can get into it later if you want. But I I, I teach an uh, eight questions that your story needs to answer, which includes the plot, but it's a lot more than plot. Like that 17-step hero's journey story structure is just the plot. That doesn't cover the, you know, how do you introduce the story? How do you d- deliver the right lesson? How do you make sure that the, um, the right action is taken after it? I mean, that's all extra. Uh, I try and capture all that in eight simple questions that your story needs to answer. Uh, so, so I don't use that term hero's journey storytelling structure because that gets people off on a much more complicated thing. But you definitely need a, a hero the audience cares about, a villain they're afraid of, and some kind of a struggle or battle between them.
1: Now, unless I missed it, um, those 17 steps and eight questions, they're not in the book that we're talking about today. They're in your other books. Or, or, is that right?
2: Well, the 17 steps isn't in any of my books because I don't recommend it. And okay. That's, that's okay. the whole point. I, that's way too complicated for a two-minute leadership story. The eight questions, I think, are at the last chapter of this book, The Ten Stories Great Leaders Tell, but they're covered in much more detail in some of my my other books, but I think okay. it is in the last chapter, and I'd be happy to go through those eight with you if you're if you're interested.
1: Well, if you want, let you know, There's no time like the present. Go ahead and go yeah. through them now, because either yeah. I missed them or or I don't know. I know I've highlighted at different at different points some questions and that you ask, and and you know I remember to, one of my great advisors taught it's the questions more important than the answers. The questions you ask, yeah. but, but anyway. <laughs>
2: Yeah, let me, I'll go through them real quick. And they are, they're kind of buried right at the end of, of the book. And like I said, I go into, I, have, I have multiple chapters in my other books that go into detail on these. Um, but so here, here they are. So the first question your story needs to answer is, why should I bother listening to the story? <laughs> right? You need to give your audience a reason to listen to your story. Because if you don't, they, they might not. Right? So once you've adequately answered that question, you've kind of earned the right to answer the next five questions. And here they are. Uh, where and when did it take place? Who's the main character and what did they want? What was the problem or opportunity they ran into? What did they do about it? And how did it turn out in the end? Right. Now, those, those should sound like, that should sound like the natural flow of a story because it is, of course, the natural flow of a story. But if you're keeping track, that's only six. So last two are, what did you learn from it? And what do you think I should go do now? So that's your opportunity to make a recommendation, right? So this, mm-hmm. these are typically leadership stories or sales stories you're trying to, change some behavior. So the the five questions in the middle of those eight is really the plot of the story. The first one is the way, the hook, the way to get your audience interested in listening. And the last two are basically how to to accomplish something with the story. Make sure they they learn the right lesson and that they're going to go do what you wanted them to do. So I think if you answer those eight questions in that order, uh, a, a story will naturally emerge in the right structure.
1: Well, you know what? You're absolutely right. It is in the book. It's on page 98. And I even highlighted it. Um, just my my uh, brain cognitive functions aren't working as well as I'd hope they were. No, um, all all right, well, I, let's, let's... I did my best to hide it. <laughs> <laughs> no, you didn't. Um, hey, so look, um, you know, this is also something that, that was very interesting for me. I don't know where I learned it first, but um, you talked about the discoveries in neuroscience, and I, I don't remember exactly how you, I think I saw a video that you, you were talking about how we make these decisions, uh, mostly from the subconscious, and then we use conscious logical facts to back up, in, in you, do me a favor before I butcher it, <laughs> go ahead yeah. and explain what I, what, where I'm going with that.
2: Yeah, so it turns out much of the cognitive science that's been done in the last couple of decades has taught us that human beings don't make Uh, the logical, rational decisions that we'd like to think that we do. It turns out more often than not, we make subconscious, emotional, sometimes irrational decisions in one place in our brain. And then we justify that decision logically and rationally a few nanoseconds later in a more conscious thinking, logical processing part of the brain. So you leave the decision only remembering the logical part of it. Uh, Because the other emotional part was really handled on a subconscious level, but really that's where the decision was made and the other part of your brain is just trying to catch up and justify that. So that's one of the reasons why storytelling is so important because most of our rational conversation at work only speaks to that logical processing part of the brain. But in order to get people to actually make different decisions or change their opinion or their behavior, leadership, right, it turns out you need to talk to both parts of the brain. And stories are uniquely qualified to speak to both parts of the brain, not just the logical, rational part of the brain.
1: Yeah, and I think that's an extremely important point because particularly if you're a guy like me who studied computer science, you think logic and facts are what rule the day and later you learn that, you know, it really isn't. Um, You might want to believe that they should be, but that's not the case, especially when you're trying to, let's go back to that word, influence. When you're trying to influence people, it's really about emotions and it's key and it's very, very important uh, as we go through the rest of it. If there's, for me, if there's nothing, you guys listening, take away more than anything, you know the influence part. Uh, don't neglect, don't underestimate how important the the subconscious is and the emotional right. decisions. So why, you, you know, I'm, I'm gonna there's there's some. I'm gonna ask you a series of questions. I'm gonna do a rapid fire. <laughs> I'm gonna give you three or four questions right right now, and, and then you can answer them as you will. Um, but essentially, if you think back to before. We started reading the written word. You know, people would tell stories and pass them down generation and gen- after generation after generation, and people got good at telling stories, and it's a lost art in many ways because once we learn to read, you don't have to mem- memorize or remember oh. the story. So the three questions I have for you. Why are stories more memorable than other, th- other facts, if you will? What makes them contagious, and why do they inspire us?
2: Yeah, so, well, starting with why are they more memorable? So, the, the best answer I can give you there is I, I don't know. <laughs> there are, uh, there's something about the human brain that we're just wired to listen to, to speak in, and to understand stories. Um, the, the one part of it that I, I do think is well understood uh, in, in the psychology is the impact that um, surprises have on memory. When you get surprised, it turns out it releases a little bit of adrenaline in your system. And that adrenaline actually makes the memory process more efficient. It's called, a, the psychologists call it the memory consolidation process. It makes that more efficient and effective. Just like, by the way, caffeine has the same effect uh, on, on memory formation. It makes, you, you can remember better when you've had a cup of coffee, right? So, there's your excuse for your, your, your morning cup of coffee. Sure. <laughs> um, but a surprise in a story does the same thing. It releases some adrenaline in your system, which literally makes your brain's memory formation work Better, uh, which is why it's important to have a surprise in a story, and that's one of the elements that I, I teach my audiences to do is to create a, a surprise. Um, as far as why they're more contagious, um, it, I'm sure it's probably some of the same reasons that makes them more memorable. But people enjoy uh, telling stories, right? You, you enjoy telling them, you enjoy listening to them, it's, it's a lot more interesting than a, a boring lecture, right? Mm. Or you know, listening to the boss give you, here are the five things that you need to do this week, you know, whatever. Um, so it, it's, it's part of human culture to enjoy sharing and listening to stories so that they will spread on their own. Uh, whereas your policy memos probably don't, right? They, they stay where you send them. But if you tell somebody a, an interesting story, they can't wait to go tell somebody else. So um, the fact is that they are the psychological and physiological reasons why they are is uh, in in many ways a mystery to me, and, and and it is for the you know all of humanity. Some of it is just a mystery. Um, as far as inspiring, yeah, I, I think you asked the right three questions in a row because I think I give you the same answer on all of them. A, I don't think anybody really knows. Um, but B, it's they're all it's a very human thing, storytelling. Mm -hmm. Whereas, uh, you know, we, in fact, the, the best description I've heard of it is that we are naturally emotional storytelling creatures who are capable of logical, rational thought and conversation, not the other way around. We're not naturally logical, rational, you know, beings who are capable of emotion. It's the opposite. We're emotional beings, storytelling beings who are capable of logic and rational thought, at least we have been since the Renaissance, right? Um, uh, So it's just, just, that is the natural state of affairs of human beings, that stories are more memorable, they're contagious and they inspire us.
1: Great. You know, so what I like to do a lot, Paul, is I'll recap some of the things you said. I got to tell you, when you talked about surprise and the impact it has on memory, I didn't really know or realize that and didn't realize that coffee Um, had that same effect. I wish I could use it as an excuse for me this morning, but I already had my coffee. So, um, yeah, yeah. you know, I got to tell you also, I'm also, I'm very fascinated with uh, what the discoveries in neuroscience and psychology are, just as a side note. And and the third thing that I wrote down is, is that, you know, as I was reading your book, I, I can't tell you that This just popped out for me. You use the word human, human thing, something related to human needs, probably more than I ever remembered in the amount of pages that, that are in your book. Um, mm-hmm. And even if it we're like a 200, 400-page book, you just use it quite a bit. And, and it's mm-hmm. there's a key, there's a reason you use it. And, and I'm hoping that's going to, I'm sure it'll flesh out as we talk and ask more questions. Yeah. So, so let's yeah. Well, into- for,
2: Well, I'll tell you what, for, for your notes, though, ma- make a note of uh, Dr. James McGonagall, I think if I'm not mispronouncing that, and look up the experiments that he did with rats. <laughs> so, w- which is literally how he first discovered this effect of uh uh caffeine and other stimulants like that on memory formation it's uh, fascinating
1: oh good that's going to lead into my last question in this chapter 1 thing so well okay, in chapter 1 he's talking about a founder's story a founding story and and the point here is to give your pl- employees to be a chance a chance to be a part of something greater than just doing their job. Nobody just wants to go to work. They want to feel like they're contributing and and, and their work matters. So mm-hmm. um, another note that I highlighted in that chapter is he talked about, you know, conveying the passion and drive behind your company's start or the purpose for, for, for that matter. Now in this chapter and in every chapter he uses a story to illustrate his point of a founding story. And he talks about, um, the Cliff Bar, which you know, I got to tell you, Paul, I I didn't know the story. Uh, I used to be an avid cyclist, and I ended up buying Cliff Bars in the past week after reading your book. <laughs> um, but uh, well,
2: they owe me a commission, I think.
1: There you go. Um, now, do you wanna do you want to summarize that story or talk any about it? Um, if you if you don't mind, could you just kind of give us a snapshot of what that story is all about and and why is Why it's so important and the human reason behind how it makes people feel like they're part of it. Why did I go out and buy a Cliff Bar?
2: Right. Yeah. So first of all, nobody ever quit their job, risked everything to go start their own company for a boring reason right? There's always an interesting reason why somebody takes that kind of a leap of faith and puts their, you know, life savings at risk and to go do something like that. So, every, every company's original founding story is probably interesting and exciting, and I'll use the word human again, a very human reason. You know, oh, I, I hate my boss. This, this company sucks. I, I could make this product better than that. Like, there's always some reason like that. And if you tell that story for your employees, it will help them find the same passion and drive that you had that made you go found that company or if you're just an employee at the company that made them the founder go do that. You want to share that with your employees. You know the, the cliff bar story, the first thing interesting about that is you notice that nowhere in it do I mention cliff bar until the last few sentences of the story. Like so you don't know right. the stories about the invention of the cliff bar until the end which is which is because I was trying to create a surprise ending in the story because surprises help release that adrenaline that makes the story more memorable. But Anyway, the whole story centers around the the founder Gary Erickson, who's out on this 125 mile bike ride, and of course he's got five or six energy bars in his pocket because you got to refuel. As you know, as a cyclist, you cycle that far, you're going to burn through a lot of calories, so you got to refuel several points along the way. And he gets to the top of a hill; I think he's 50 miles left to go in his ride, and um, you know, pulls out the fifth or sixth of his (laughs) six cereal bars, and he just says uh, to his don't forget this part.
1: Cause, cause I remember them. They were sticky. I hated opening them. Your hands would get all messy, but go ahead. Cause that yeah, adds yeah, some yeah. rich. Go ahead.
2: Yeah. Yeah. He, he, well, that, that was coming next. Like he, he says, I just can't eat another one of these. And he explains that. I mean, I think they were, there were probably power bars. I think that was the first brand
1: oh, right, right. of,
2: of, of these kind of uh, power, the energy bars. Right. And they were, they were hard and sticky and they sat in your stomach like a rock, you know, and, um, but there was nothing else on the market, so that's what he ate. And, and uh, you know, coasting down that hill that day on an empty stomach because he, he refused to eat one more, he says to his buddy, you know what, I, I can I can make another, I can make a better energy bar than this. And he actually owned a bakery, which was the, the you know, his thought is, why can't I make something better than this? So he did, you know, and that, mm-hmm. that's that moment on that hill in California, you know, was when the cliff Bar was born was that moment. And so, if you worked at Cliff Bar, telling people that story will help them have that same level of passion and commitment, you know that Gary Erickson did when he decided to, to create that product.
1: Yeah, and you talk about the pivotal moment in, uh, um, let's just say let's say you work, somebody's working, a leader is crafting their story, whatever it is, one of these tens, uh, and they leave out the pivotal moment. You know, I don't know if this is a fair question, yes, but if they leave that pivotal moment out, I mean, what, what have, what has your experience been on the impact of communicating your message?
2: Well, so first of all, we're just talking about the founding story right now. That's chapter one out of 10 stories, right? So, um, so the the founding story is built around the pivotal moment where somebody decides to quit the job they had before and what made them go decide to start this new company. So none of the other nine of the ten stories have a moment like that because okay. that's that's unique to this story. Um, okay. they all have their own interesting, you know pivotal components, but they don't they don't they don't have this one. Okay. Uh, but if you have a founding story that doesn't have this part, you're not telling a founding story. In fact, the the worst founding stories are, you know, they all sound the same, right? They're, you know, we started our company 45 years ago in a basement with uh, two guys and, and you know, uh, and $20. And, you know, today we're a Fortune 500 company and 15 countries around the world and blah, 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 you know. So they're not telling the story of the founding. They're telling the whole history of the company in two minutes, (laughs) you know, which is not a founding story. Mm -hmm. Everything that happened after the moment it was founded is no longer the founding story. It's something else story, right? The founding story is an entire story just about that decision moment, that moment that the founder said, you know, screw it. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm quitting and I'm going to go make that, you know, that, that emotional moment of decision. That's what the founding story is about.
1: Okay. Now, look, I don't know if this is a fair question for you because you spent two decades with Procter & Gamble. Did you have a pivotal moment? And if you did, would you share that? I mean, it doesn't have to be that you left. I mean, two decades is a lot to be working for anybody. That's what I did with the Army. And anyway, do you have one or or if you do, I'd love to hear it.
2: I had a very pivotal moment. So, I mean, I, I, I developed a, a passion for storytelling along that 20-year journey and, and it was, I was frustrated that I didn't know how to do it and I read a bunch of books on it and I still didn't know how to do it and I started interviewing other leaders who I thought were good at it. And somewhere along the route, I decided, you know, to write, to, to do a lot of research and write my own book on the topic just, you know, because I figured if I wanted to know it that badly, other people probably did as well. Well, I ended up writing my first book, "Lead with a Story," and but I still I did all this while I was still working at Procter and Gamble. I still had a full time day job. I was writing the book at nights and weekends and lunch break. And um, the book came out, and I, I you know I wanted to wait to see how well it would do, you know, because you know I wouldn't want to quit my job to go become an author and speaker if there was no business there for me, right? Right. Um, and and a, a few months later, at the point where I felt like I had enough you know, the phone had rung enough. I, you know, I think the book had already gone into its third printing and um, I, I'd had several clients who'd contacted me. So I had a, I had a rational, uh, you know, reason to say, I think this is going to work. I should go ahead and quit my job and pursue this professionally. But I didn't have the courage to do it. Like emotionally, I wasn't there. I was I was scared. I mean, you know, I, I was in my mid-40s. I had, you know, a wife and two kids, you know, two kids put through college. I mean, you know, too young to retire. It was a difficult financial decision to make. And the, the pivotal moment came when I asked my dad, my 80-year-old father, for advice. Um, and I had to do this over email because he, he's hard of hearing, so I can't call him on the phone anymore. Anyway, I told him what I just told you and I said, hey, I'd love to go do this, but I'm kind of chicken. <laughs> like, uh, can you you know, give me some advice? And I thought he would tell me one of two things, right? He's either going to write me back and he's going to say, uh, absolutely, you can do this, son. I have faith in you. Go, go, go pursue your dream. Or he's going to say, are you nuts? Like, just keep your head down and like focus and wait till you can retire and comfortably and then go pursue all this nonsense. But, you know, be a responsible husband and, and father, right? But he didn't do either of those things, Tom. He, he, what he did was he, he told me a story about himself that I'd never heard before and neither had any of my siblings. He said, when I was five years old, I knew exactly what I wanted to do with my life. He said, I wanted to be a singer, like Frank Sinatra or Tony Bennett or Sammy Davis Jr., right? The Rat Pack, that was his genre. Uh, And he said, I knew that for sure. The first day of the first grade, the teacher asked us if any of us had any special talent, you know, dancing or magic tricks. And he said, I raised my hand and I said, I'm a singer. Now, what do you think the teacher did, Tom, when little five-year-old Bobby Smith said uh, that he's a singer?
1: My guess is he or she discouraged him.
2: Okay. Well, n- no, he had a better teacher than that.
1: <laughs> oh, good, good. <laughs> she, she,
2: yeah. She said, well, Bobby, stand up and sing us a song now, right? So little five-year-old Bobby Smith stood up and belted out his favorite song right there, acapella in front of the teacher and the other students. And <clears throat> he said, I, my dad tells me in this email, he said, I nailed it. He said, I got all the words right, all the melody right. I was so proud of myself. And he said, the teacher and the other students stood up and they applauded me. I, I wow. literally got a standing ovation my first time to ever perform in front of an audience. You know, he like all he had done is sing in the kitchen with his mom before, right? And he said, uh, he went on in this letter to say, um, unfortunately, that turned out not just to be the first time in my life that I ever sang in front of an audience. It turned out to be the last time that I ever sang in front of an audience. And he said, "You know, the the, life definitely got in the way. I grew up and went to school and got a job, met your mother, had children, you know, all that stuff." He said, "But the truth is, son, I just never had the courage to pursue it." And he said, "There's, you know, he said I'm I'm 80 years old now, and that happened 75 years ago. And there's not a month that goes by that I have not thought about that decision and regretted it." And he said, "Someday you're going to wake up, you're going to be 80 years old like me, and it's going to be too late to pursue your dream." And uh, Tom, I kid you not, if, if, as if that wasn't enough to convince me to do it. And by the way, it was. <clears throat> I kid you not. He, he closes the letter with these words. He said, I'd love to see you achieve your dream. But that doesn't mean in your lifetime, son. That means in mine. And I just thought, oh, oh my gosh. Like, like talk, right? The guy's 80. <laughs> like, I mean, no pressure, dad. So, but l- Tom, literally two days later, I walk into my boss's office and I quit my job. My 20-year career. Walked out. Uh, to do this for looting. And that was, that was seven years ago. And it absolutely was the best decision I ever made. And it absolutely would not have happened if my father had not told me that story at that time.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, if any of you need a story about courage, you just heard one. And about applying courage. Um, Wow. I mean, we got to go to a break, but that was a fantastic story. Thank you so much for sharing that, Paul. I mean, and you, even in your dedication to the book, you talk about your grandfather and his dairy business. And I'm sure that you've got a family full of stories. And maybe we can pick that one up after the break. But look, if you've been listening, we've been talking to Paul Smith. And we've been talking about the 10 stories great leaders tell. And we're going to take a break and we'll be right back it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
3: As Tom works with leaders, something he consistently sees is their struggle with engagement and retention. Then their frustration with having to repeat the employee development process again and again. What most people don't know is the answer lies in love. Once they realize that they simply need to apply the golden rule, the results are surprising. They start bringing out the best in others. They develop confident, capable employees, and they find they have more fun and freedom and less stress in their lives. Perhaps most importantly, they satisfy what they've been craving. Now they've created the culture that they and their team have always wanted. This is when synergy takes over and the results are astounding. The first step is critical. When you exhibit the self-awareness and humility that shows you need to learn and improve continuously, you set the example and encourage others to follow. To learn more, visit Blackhawk Leadership Development at blackhawkspeaks.com.
2: That's blackhawkspeaks.com.
0: You are listening to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you have questions or comments about the program, you may send an email to tom at blackhawkspeaks.com. Now, back to Your Evolving Leadership Journey.
1: Well, welcome back. We have been speaking with Paul Smith this morning, a best-selling author, and we've been talking about his book, "The Ten Stories Great Leaders Tell." And if you missed it before the break, he just shared a story that um, his father about his father and about the le- a message about courage. And you know, I would tell you that all of all the things we could talk about the chapters, and Paul even said at the beginning, "You're you're not going to remember a list of things. You're going to remember a story." And, you know, I'm going to remember the story he just told. Paul, do you want to leapfrog from there and just say, explain why that's such an important thing? Not just your story, but any story.
2: Yeah. So, you know, in that case, that was a story that gave me courage to go pursue my dream. And, and stories like that help other people uh, find their own courage to go do the things that they want to do because, uh, change is hard, right? Uh, it, it's difficult to, to break out of the norm and do things that are maybe not the, the safe route. And that's what I needed at that moment in my life was a kick in the pants and some, some courage to go do something, uh, that was a little bit dangerous, but, but my gosh, I can't imagine my life here seven years later, had I not made that choice. And that story was definitely a pivotal moment. For me, and and as I mentioned you on the break, that's that story is included in my my book, Parenting, with a story for the same reason, to give other people a story they can share to help uh, the important people in their life find the courage to go do the things that they want to do in the world.
1: Well, look, if you've been listening to my show for any length of time, you know that I rarely ever get through a. a guest book and there's good reason for it. There's just so much content in there. And if you want to pick up a copy of the book, if you go to the website, your evolving leadership, you're evolving leadership journey.com, you'll find um, everything you want to know about Paul when it comes to this episode, his book, um, how you can find him on LinkedIn or on uh, Twitter, and just various links to paul and the rest of the authors and he talked about there just now why that story was so important is it, so it was a story about courage it, it inspired him and he used the word change changes heart he used two words i should say changes heart and so let's go into chapter two because we're not going to get into all 10 of them but he talks about the case for change and you know in, in his intro to this chapter, he talks that we, we are creatures of habit and change means letting go of what's comfortable. You know, and I've heard it heard or described this way is that when you have to change implicitly, you're admitting that either you're doing something wrong or you could be doing something better. And most people don't like to admit that, but if you're a leader you got to be the person to do do that because guess what? If you can demonstrate that you're malleable, that you don't have all the answers that you're um, you're willing to change, you know, and as Paul writes in his book, change creates fear, anxiety, and doubt. And, um, and so essentially the story must convince, Hey, why is change so necessary? And in this particular chapter, he talks about a boy named Joey who had kidney cancer. And while, um, Joey's fate was not positive, if you will. Uh, it led to the creation of a foundation called Joey's Wings and more awareness for pediatric cancer research. Um, now, Paul, if you would... Um, I believe you worked with a client called Keytruda, if I pronounce that correctly, and you, it inspired a change story for them. Could you just talk a little bit about that? And again, here you talk about having a human reason, the human impact for change, and, and it's just a much more effective motivator. So go ahead, and again, we're talking about motivation. Um, and I, if you've listened to me before, motivation is something that comes from within. Because you as a leader can't motivate anybody, you can inspire them, but you can't motivate them because one's external and one's internal. Um, well enough of me talking we need to hear from you. <laughs> so go ahead
2: yeah, so here's here's the strange thing about this one is that uh, my client was not Ketruda the or the makers of Katruda, uh, which might have been uh, Bayer or. Uh, no, somebody else, Merck, I think. Um, my client was another pharmaceutical company that did not make that, And which makes this even more interesting, I think, is that this story became their case for change story even though Joey wasn't their patient and Katruda wasn't their product, right? So literally imagine me at a, uh, a major pharmaceutical company helping them work through to develop their case for change and literally the day of one of the three days that I was you know, there on site with them, uh, a, an NPR news story came out about this kid, Joey, who had uh, cancer, and um, uh, uh, th- somebody heard it on the way to the, the office that day, and it so inspired her that she shared it with us in the storytelling session, and we ended up building the case for change story for this other pharmaceutical company around this one because the message was the same, even though it wasn't their product and their, their, their uh, patient, and the message was this. Wouldn't it be awesome if we could get our life-saving drugs to market in five years instead of 15 years? Because the 10-year difference, (laughs) how many Joeys are going to lose their life? Because we didn't get this life-saving drug to market sooner, right? So uh, in this case, Joey's story became their case for change because they know full well there are lots of other Joeys out there who would be able to rely on their drugs to save their life but won't if it takes them 15 years to get to market. So uh, I, I like this one, especially because of that, because it shows an example. of It doesn't have to be your own story that you find motivating to you. It could be somebody else's story.
1: Okay, great. Now, look, I have a feeling we might at least get halfway through his book. Um, if you've been tracking, the first story, first chapter was about a founding story. The second one was about a case for change. The third one is about vision. And and he writes, uh, it's when you create a picture of the future so compelling that people want to go there with you. Um, and, and why the normal phrases and arbitrary goals don't work. Why is this? Tell us why a uh, story is so much better. And, and I believe in this chapter, you talk about a future article and, and it's called Vision, A mm-hmm. Day in the Life of a Sales Forecaster. Could you expand on that?
2: Yeah, so so l- let me explain this. And then uh, if you'd indulge me, I think since, yeah, we probably won't get through all 10, it might make sense after this for me to just give people the list of the 10 so they can see That's you know, what are the most important That's fine. 10 stories.
1: You know but this content the, the, best.
2: Yes, but the, the vision story, I mean, a, a vision, a good vision, is a picture of the future so compelling that people want to follow you there, right? So, and what does that, what does that mean? It, it's uh, it's not a, a goal. Like we, we want to be the fastest growing restaurant chain on the East coast, or we want to build the world's quietest jet engines. I mean, those are nice goals, but that's not a vision. I mean, the vision is, is that picture of the future. That's, it has to be a story, right? To, to, attract people to want to be a part of that future. So you need to describe the future in terms that are compelling that people can see themselves in that's their life in the future. How will it be different than my life today? So yeah, the example in there is an article uh, written uh, essentially as if it was written from the future, you know, describing what a day in the life of somebody in this particular job is like five years from now versus what is it like today? And so the audience reading it are the people who have those type of jobs and they can see, oh my gosh, yeah, that job five years from now, my job five years from now, looks a lot more attractive than my job today. (laughs) I want that job, not the job I have now. Well, how do I get that job? Well, you got to help us achieve the vision. You got to help us get, you know, to there. Mm -hmm. Um, And the, the vision story is simply that description of the future in narrative terms that is attractive enough that people want to help you get there Um, uh, on their own, that internal motivation uh, that I think you talked about, as opposed to uh, being inspired, right? uh, This story gives them the internal motivation, right? They they, they find it themselves Mm -hmm. from the story, as opposed to you forcing it upon them by telling them what to go do.
1: Now, do you want to continue or do you want me to go through the chat? Did you want to yeah. We'll, you
2: know, let me, let me, let me give people the list. Um, okay. Uh, and was, then, it was, then it was, whatever a, time we'll go anchor. back, I'll
1: ask you some more questions.
2: Yeah. So, so the, there are hundreds of stories that I think leaders need to tell over the course of their career. The whole purpose of writing this book is to try and narrow it down to the most important 10. This is, these aren't the only stories you should tell, but if you're just beginning to start using storytelling as a leadership skill, these are probably the most important stories to start your repertoire with. And the first four of the 10 go together because they're about setting the direction for the organization. So you've already heard a couple of these, but here are the first four. Uh, Where we came from, so that's a founding story. Why we can't stay there, so that's the case for change story. Where we're going, which is the vision story that we just talked about. And number four is how we're gonna get there. So I call that a strategy story because the strategy is about how to get from where you are now to where you want to be. All right? So, But the next four go together as well, but they're more about who we are as an organization. So that's what we believe, so that's a corporate values story. Um, who we serve, so that's a customer story, a story about the customer That's um, so that people can have a visceral human understanding of who they are. Um, what we do for our customers, so I call that a, a kind of a classical sales story, the story about what you do that's so awesome people should pay you money to do it, right? And then number eight is how we're different from our competitors. So I call that a marketing story because marketing Mm -hmm. is generally about differentiation, right? All right, but so that's eight, I think. So there should be two more. So the last two go together as well, but they're more personal to you, the leader. So that's why I lead the way I do. So that's a personal leadership philosophy story. And number 10 is why you should want to work here. So not you, but you, whoever you're talking to, right? Uh, So that's a a recruiting story because every every leader's job is – to find talented people and bring them into the organization, it's not just the job of HR, or the recruiting department, or whatever. So th- those are the most important ten. I, you could, you know, and I, I selected from hundreds of stories to get down to this uh, ten. And I'll, I'll tell you that you know most of my decision criteria was based on the the executives that I've been working with for the last seven years and and what stories they ask me for help with. Um, but I also wanted stories that kind of spanned a you know a breadth of functional disciplines and. Um, also stories that I thought would um, stand the test of time, like these are not stories that would change very frequently, like your founding story. Well, that should never change, right? <laughs> I mean, you only get founded once, right? Your vision story. Well, that can change, but not every few weeks, right? Like maybe every four or five years, you come up with a new vision. Maybe every four or five years, you come up with a new strategy. So uh, these are intended to be stories that will have a long shelf life so that would behoove you to invest some time to getting these stories right because you're not just going to use them a couple of times and then throw them away.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, look, um, not only did I have questions, I even highlighted some of the things in, in some of the chapters. Uh, let me talk about one thing I highlighted in your chapter four yep. on strategy. And you talked to this story about how uh, I believe it was a young girl who learned to play soccer or football as what they would say overseas. Um, and, when she came here, she's playing with a bunch of blonde-haired girls who are playing basketball, and she's like, well, scratching her head, well, why do they only use half the court? And so they learned to do full-court press basketball. And, uh, and I love this quote that I just I have to highlight and I have to repeat for the listeners. Uh, why did this particular strategy work? In other words, playing full-court basketball and putting pressure um, on, on the ball. Um, it says letting your opponent play the game they train for is a sure path to defeat. <laughs> so do you want to comment on that? Cause it's just like, it was fantastic.
2: Yeah. So that, that story, um, uh, was the precursor to a larger story told by a company to help their employees understand their, understand their business strategy. So it was a, uh, a second or second tier brand, uh, in the a category of, um, um, Seasonal allergy, cold, flu type stuff. And the, the bigger brands, of course, you know, are the bigger brands for a reason. You know, they, they, they're the ones that got all the market share and all the money to spend on marketing and all the distribution. And they knew that by just playing the, the same, you know, uh, business strategy that everybody else plays, they're never going to get to be number one. Because they just, they were so dominated by this number one share brand. So they decided to try some really radical um, business strategies. And to explain that to their employees, one of the leaders there wrote a memo to the whole company and started with this story of this girl who used to play soccer, who now plays basketball, and her dad, who volunteered to be the coach. And they both, like, marveled at, why do, why do we only use half the court? <laughs> you know, you just, you know, and that, that gave them the idea to play a full court press literally all game long, all season long. And this little team from, I think, Menlo Park, California, ended up in the national championships when they had no, their talent was not nowhere near deserving of being there. But because they played such a radically different strategy, you know, they, they basically wore out their opponents who just mm-hmm. were not physically conditioned to run that far and that fast all game long. Um, and so it, it just demonstrates how changing kind of the rules of the game, playing with a such a radically different strategy can help you win when your opponents are much more practiced and, and better at the, the typical strategy than you are. And so then they, they tell that story in this memo and then they explain, now, here's all of our radical strategies in our business. And you can see the analogy to this full court press. Mm-hmm. Um so that's kind of a, two stories in one. One story about the, you know, basketball playing girls and one story about their business strategy. But it, it creates a good analogy and I think I think it works.
1: Yeah, and you talk about how it was an article and you say writing such an inspiring article and explaining that strategy in a way that the people could understand, appreciate and most important, execute is key. So so that was something I, I, I wanted to highlight um, before people went out and bought your book now in the corporate values one you know i i grew up in a or i I grew up business-wise in a company that had been around for a couple centuries and that being the army and one of the things we had is you know the advantage of like a like these big companies that have all the market share well we had we had centuries of policies. And, you know, when you talk about your corporate values, um, you say most people, the the values are only words out of a piece of paper until they're tested. And only a story can convey the uncomfortable or awkward predicament we require to truly define the values. The great thing about you know, my culture, what we grew up when we, the acronym for our values was LDRSHIP, go figure, leadership. And and for every one of those words, there was a unique story about some hero who did whatever it was. And as you're reading it, you understood what loyalty meant and duty and respect. And, and they really just went through all seven of them. I'll just go for the other four, selfless service, honor, integrity, and personal courage. And so it gave you some deeper, richer insight into why this value is important to this organization. And, you know, one of the things I I jotted down in my notes here is, uh, first of all, at the end of every chapter, Paul has tips on how you can actually write this particular story, these 10 stories. And, you know, when it comes to, uh, I wrote this as a personal note, and, and I wrote down intent is better than policy man- manuals. Now, nobody's going to know what that means, so let me explain it. So we had this thing called the commander's intent. And so if I, if you were on my team and I explained to you, here's the intent and you understood the values and everybody was aware and I got knocked off in battle, the goal was is that you were be able to pick up Ball and run with it after I was gone. And and so you shouldn't have to go as as a subordinate of mine or me as a subordinate of yours. I shouldn't have to go to a policy manual to figure out what needs to be. If I understand the intent and I can live within the spirit of that, and I live it and I'm operating within a culture of where. It's a learning culture. You're allowed to make mistakes, and people aren't bludgeoned to death if they make a mistake. Um, then this is how you get better, and you're just not hamstrung or restricted. Because um, sometimes we just get caught up in. And I like the way you. <laughs> I like the way you talk about how. Um, Words just aren't the same as stories. So I don't know if you want to pick up on that. We have at least five or 10 more minutes to go. So do you, you, anything you want to add to that? I mean, because values are very important to me and that's why I highlighted it and commented it, commented
2: well, I, I think the thing I'd like to um, follow up on there was the, you mentioned at the end of every chapter, I have these tips on how to find and craft your own. So in this particular chapter, you know, the, the, the advice would be, you know, go, go find examples of when people behaved in a way that truly exemplified the values that you're trying to um, get people to, uh, to follow or examples where somebody did exactly the opposite. They did something terrible that, you know, and they suffered the consequences of that. Um, and, because the, the stories about it will make the, the theoretical value as stated on the company value statement more real and tangible. People will understand, oh, that's what that means. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so and I think if you don't have very many company value stories, you probably don't have many well-understood company values, period. Right? You need to have stories behind them. So anyway, the, uh, the the questions that are asked at the end of each chapter like this will help you find your own stories uh, to fill this this need.
1: Yeah, and to his, Paul's comment, I mean, I even have a note there where he talks about on, on page forty. he talks about how... Those exactly what he said. Find an example where somebody did something right. Find an example where somebody did something wrong. Go and ask the people what did they learn from it? And let them speak first. Um, and and you'll find that they're gonna share and just just by communicating in that way, I mean, I don't know, I just I feel like it relieves a lot of the tension and the pressure that sometimes organizations unnecessarily apply uh, to their employees and in, at any rate I, I just think that that's really really important and he does have a bunch of insightful and questions that uh, wrote down there are six more that are on that particular page or chapter um, so look we only have a few more minutes left and I don't know if you're willing to do this but since you wrote it in your dedication two minutes left do you have a grandfather story that you want to share well um, yeah I
2: don't know that I have a story about my grandfather but I'll tell you why I I dedicated the book yeah, to him. And it, it, um, he, so my grandfather lived to the age of 94 or a few days before his 94th birthday. Um, and when he was in the third grade, his uh, f- his father lost his job or so some, something happened. And he had to basically drop out of school uh, and get a job to help support the family. Uh, and literally the job that he got was delivering uh, milk and ice to people. So, I mean, th- this is literally would have been back in 1908 mm-hmm. or, or thereabouts. So people didn't have refrigerators that you had to deliver ice to them and you keep it in a, a, an ice cooler and uh, people had milk delivered every day. So he became an ice, an ice man at the age of eight <laughs> and he never went back to school. He, he, he worked literally from the age of eight to the age of probably 80 nine or, uh, no, he might've worked all the way up until 92, a year or two before he he died. So he literally had like an eight decade working career. Uh Um, and so he had, he had almost no formal education, uh, you know, in, in times where, you know, many of his bosses, you know, were decades younger than him. And, um, you know, but, and had all kinds of formal education. Uh, but he ended up rising fairly high in the dairy industry and ended up in the state of Arkansas, becoming the, uh, basically the ambassador to the governor for, for all things dairy industry. And and much of his leadership was because of telling great stories because he didn't have the analytics and the education to, to know what to do, but he told a lot of fabulous stories and it, it helped him achieve the success that he had.
1: Well, look, that is fantastic, and again, we get back to the emotional uh, versus the logical decision-making. That's probably why your grandfather was so successful. Uh, We've been speaking this morning with Paul Smith, the 10 Stories Great Leaders Tell. Paul, it's been a privilege to have you with us this morning. Thank you very much for being our guest.
2: Thanks for having me on, Tom.
1: Absolutely. Look, if you want to know more about Paul, you can find links to him and his site and various things. Go to com and look for today's episode and that information, those links are there. Thanks again, Paul. Everyone else, have a great week.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. Be sure to join host Tom Crea for another edition next Monday morning at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And have a great week.